0: Dadaj's friends and family, welcome back to the final episode of our series entitled, It Takes Credit to Make Money. And since on this particular topic, this is our last hand to play, we decided to double down here on Datages. We're very fortunate to be joined in the Dadaj's virtual studio today by not one, but two titans of the banking industry to wrap up this meaningful topic. And I think we truly saved the best for last. You know, When I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Dadages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel, and if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit Datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. I'm proud to be joined by fellow members of the Stanford Alumni Real Estate Council who are both far more distinguished than I am in that regard as you'll hear in a minute. I'm also excited about the perspective that they can bring today because they've both worked as senior executives managing some of the most influential lending platforms in the commercial real estate industry at Bank of America and Wells Fargo and they both retired from the world of the big banks to pursue other adventures at this stage of their careers which means that they can also be a lot more candid with us than they might if they were still working for publicly traded institutions. It's my pleasure to welcome to Datage's Wayne Brandt and Ron Stursniger. Thank you for being here, gentlemen.
1: Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Chad.
0: So, I'll admit, I'm not usually a fan of the sort of standard formal career bio introduction in these kinds of podcasts or conferences and such. And I'm going to make an exception in this case. And it's as much for me as it is for the rest of the Dadages friends and family joining us, because you guys are both so humble and down to earth that. Sometimes I can be lulled myself into a sense of complacency where I might risk taking for granted the caliber of people that are in my own life. And being here with you gentlemen and having a chance to refresh my own memory in terms of your bio and your background, I'm reminded of how blessed and fortunate I am to be able to count you gentlemen among my friends and colleagues. So here goes. Wayne first. Wayne was a managing director and the National Originations Director for Wells Fargo Bank's CMBS business. While working for institutions such as Wells Fargo Trust Company of the West, Greenwich Capital, Menlo Equities, and J.P. Morgan, Wayne has successfully led and built investment teams and lent and invested over $35 billion in real estate transactions. And Ron? Ron occupied the position of chairman at Institute for Portfolio Alternatives Managing Director at Bank of America Securities, Inc. Easy for me to say. Legacy Asset Servicing Executive at Bank of America Corp. And Managing Director at Merrill Lynch, a subsidiary of Bank of America Corp. Principal at Morgan Stanley. Global Head Real Estate and Gaming at Bank of America Securities. Ron, you sit on the board of five companies and you're a member of the prestigious Real Estate Roundtable. Well, friends and family, soak all of that in. You can tell that the collective wisdom and the years of experience and, and just the sheer brain power we have in the studio today are probably among the best that we've had to experience so far at Datages. So gentlemen, again, thank you for being here and thank you for taking the time to participate in our little corner of the world. So gentlemen, as we shared just a moment ago in your backgrounds, there's a lot of commonality to your background. First, I want to start with the commonality of what we three share as an undergraduate experience at Stanford. Maybe you gentlemen can share with us each of your perspectives in terms of what that Stanford experience meant to you and how it reflected later in your career. Wayne, we'll start with you.
2: Sure. Thanks, Chad. Again, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to be here with, with Ron. We'll talk about banking and all the topics today, but specifically, you know my undergraduate experience at stanford was was quite seminal it was a lot of mentoring as you kind of move out of your parents household into your stanford ecosystem so many of those really formative relationships are still very close with me today and we speak almost you know every week sometimes every day I cherish those relationships, but it's given me an appreciation and a a compassion for Stanford. And I've had the pleasure of being involved with the Stanford Professionals in Real Estate, which you founded, Chad, over 10 years ago. I've been involved in that for 11 years as a member. And it's just been a very nourishing part of You know, my after graduating from Stanford, that experience has brought me back. It's connected me and it's kind of given me a much broader and wider experience that I never thought I would really have as an
0: undergraduate at Stanford. Ron, similar perspective from you?
1: Well, first off, it is great to be here with Wayne and Chad. I'll say that as well. But with your introduction, Chad, I can now only disappoint your audience.
0: (laughs) Not likely.
1: I can never live up to that. But I'll say the same thing about Stanford. I was fortunate. I grew up in a great household in Southern California. We were primarily agriculture. We you know, raised avocados. We raised citrus. And getting into Stanford was a fundamental change in my entire lifestyle and my entire future. And it was partly what I learned at Stanford, which was spectacular. I had an engineering degree it taught me to be technical and thoughtful and plan things out. But it was really mostly just the people I engaged with, the people I met, the other students, the faculty, the network of alumni. Wayne mentioned sort of the mentorship. My friends were my greatest mentors at that point in time. I really learned from them. I can still remember my very first job out of college came from a friend of mine who came back on campus campus. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm working for this company. I said, what do they do? He walked me through it. I would have never heard of that company. And that's the company I joined right out of college. So again, it was the influence of the people around me. Now, I'll make a relatively simple analogy. I found that Stanford was a very fast moving stream. All you had to do is get in that stream and keep up your head above water. And it pulled you in directions you never thought you could get to. So I really look at Stanford as basically the stream that I managed to find my way in. Thank you, Fred Hargadon, for making the decision to admit me. I don't know what you saw in me that no one else did or that I maybe I didn't, but you put me in that stream and I've been pulled along ever since.
0: Well, Ron, thank you for sharing that perspective. So I guess we're the three salmon swimming in the same stream. Good to know. And speaking of which, both of your streams took you, and this is another point of common ground between the two of you, you each ended up on the East Coast then for graduate programs. Wayne, you attended and graduated from the uh, Masters in Real Estate program from MIT. And for those of the people in the Dadages' friends and family who aren't aware, that's certainly one of the most, if not the most prestigious, real estate education graduate program in the country. And then Ron, you were no slouch yourself, getting an MBA from Harvard, uh, which you know needs no introduction or explanation for our audience, I'm sure. But there's a lot of talk, East Coast, West Coast, Stanford versus the Ivy Leagues and the Northeastern schools, cultural differences, educational differences, undergrad versus graduate. Ron, can you maybe start out and compare and contrast for us what those experiences were like between your undergrad career at Stanford and your graduate career?
1: I'd be happy to. So I think you can get an excellent education East or West. I think that's been proven. Stanford is a spectacular education out in the West, as is UC Berkeley, UCLA, and all the other schools we have out West. And then the East Coast really has just also equally good, equally competent. The way I looked at it was I wanted to diversify my background. I'd grown up in the West. I'd been in the West. I'd gone to Stanford University and the opportunity to attend Harvard and live in Boston and meet a different sort of group of people, much like the Stanford people pulled me along. I thought the Harvard people would do as well. That's really all I looked at. Great university in Boston, diversifying my background and skill set. So I'll put that on the education side. On the finance side, it's become a little less important. But when Wayne and I first came out, You literally had to do finance in New York. It was really hard to be finance if you were in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago. Yes, you could be involved, but it was hard to have that global footprint. The global financial markets worked through New York in the 80s and 90s. And now with telecommuting and technology as good as it is, I think you have a much better chance at being in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago or Dallas and doing global finance But being in New York, I still think is a really good way to train yourself as a young analyst or a young associate. Because there is, you know, I used to always say, I have to go visit my clients all the time when I lived in San Francisco. When I lived in New York, they came and saw me once a quarter. They'd make the, the pilgrimage to New York to meet their financial analysts, the financial communities. I could literally sit in my office and they would come see me once a quarter. It was great. But once I lived in San Francisco, I had to go see them once a quarter. So it just put me on the road a lot more. So being in New York to start, or being in the East Coast to start, I thought was a great early career move from my perspective.
0: And Wayne, for you, was it that same diversification of geography, of perspective, of experience that led you East to MIT?
1: I have a
2: very kind of strong view on this. It's very similar to the way Ron answered it, but I'm going to take us back to mentorship. As an undergrad, you know, my father was a litigator, he's an attorney. I always thought I was headed to law school and suddenly, you know, my friends in college were all headed to investment banks, you know, on the East coast. I didn't know what an investment bank was. And I was head down law school and they said, that is the dumbest thing. You need to come look at what's on the East coast. And so I ended up pursuing that path, going to JP Morgan. I was, I started on their commercial bank training program, their corporate finance program, you know, three of my roommates, two Morgan Stanley guys, one guy from Goldman Sachs, that was a seminal experience being post graduation in New York in a city I'd never lived in before. And that was so shaping. And so it further shaped, you know, my decision, you know, when I went back to graduate school, the importance I think of being bi coastal and being able to, you know, have a further reach in the country and understanding kind of the cultural and business differences. In nineteen ninety six I moved back to Los Angeles and kind of began my next phase of my banking career, but always on a resume. I'm always, this is a bit of my bias, I'm looking for bi-coastal or, you know, really kind of extended international experiences. It does not just about building a resume, but just having the interpersonal and the maturity, you know, experience that that brings. And I've encouraged that with my kids to a fault. I don't think they're ever coming back to California, <laughs> but that is something that they've all benefited from. You know, I've got one on the East Coast, one in Texas, And it's just, for me, I gained so much living in Boston, living in New York, aside from the, you know, the business advantages, I think it gave me just seeing the center of the crucible of capital markets, as kind of Ron has said, working on Wall Street. So,
0: yeah. Wise words, wise words for sure. And, you know, one of the phenomena that I hear about a lot when people go to a master's program, like a master's in real estate or an MBA it's also a chance to completely reset your career path and your network and set yourself off in a different trajectory. Did you both find that to be the case or was it kind of just a stepping stone to continue down the path you were already on at the time? Ron, from your perspective?
1: Well, it definitely was a transition for me. So, like I said, I was an engineer undergraduate, but I knew I wanted to be in business. So, I went to Bain & Company, the consulting firm. That's where I spent my 2 years. But when I applied to business school, I can still remember my theme was I'm an engineer I want to be in business, I need an MBA so that I can manage engineering businesses. OK, I really thought I was going to be, a, you know, running an engineering business. And by the way, I was consulting 82 to 84 when some Microsystems was starting and all these new technology companies were up and running. So, but then I go to Harvard Business School and I always loved real estate. Right. And as a builder of things, I thought building real estate projects would be really fun. But when I graduated, much like the, Wayne heard the call to New York and finance, I'd never lived in New York. I heard the call to finance. I thought I'll spend a couple of years doing real estate investment banking and then once I build some capital for myself, I'll go in the development business. So I use that as a transition. And I sort of left behind my thought of managing an engineering business or a technical vision or a computing business. By the way, that's probably cost me several hundreds of millions of dollars, that decision alone, <laughs> given what happened to Silicon Valley while I was away. But, but that's another story. But then I really loved my clients. I loved the business. I loved my teammates. And so here I thought I was going to be five years doing real estate finance. And the next thing I know, I have a 30 year career doing it. And I really enjoyed it and loved it. But once I was on that path, I never quite got back to really do real estate ownership until I retired. And then I did have the time to pursue that second passion, which is more investing and being an owner of real estate with the capital I built, having been an investment banker for the past 30 years.
2: So, I would say my decision to go to MIT, again, was largely influenced by the mentors around me. I was working at the Trammell Crow company at that time from 1986 to 1990, and that was a heavy business school culture. All my bosses had graduate degrees from Harvard, and so it was very much kind of expected that you'd go back to graduate school. In 1991, if we recall our history, there was the SNL crisis, there was the Iraqi war. And our company at that time was going through just a massive seismic recapitalization and near bankruptcy. And it was amazing learning for me to do that. But I went to, you know, the Crows, Mr. Crow and his son and others. And I said, think about going to business school. And they were highly encouraging. They said, you should do that. Nothing's really going to change here. You'll have a job when you come back, but go further yourself. They understood that. Like, What it meant, and it doesn't mean just to go get more book knowledge, but the furthering yourself in Boston as Ron did and how I had the opportunity to my wife and I moved and she was working at the time and there was a lot of financial sacrifice, but it was a very deliberate move, and it was clear halfway through that decision that there was no job opportunities after (laughs) postgraduates. So it was a very interesting time and but I wouldn't have traded that decision to go spend more time further. In real estate, I knew I wanted to be in real estate. That's where I made a decision. MBA would be great, but it was two years. And I really liked the program at MIT and I really liked Boston. And I wanted to get back further in my career. I was a little bit older, I was 31 when I did that. So I had other kind of motivations, but those from my mentor, the company supporting me, and then wanting to have another East Coast experience was really the motivations for doing that.
0: Yeah, I find the background each of you shared fascinating. We had a podcast episode about developing platform for in real estate, meaning building a company around real estate development and finding your way into the real estate industry. As I shared in that episode, there are multiple pathways that can be pursued to get into real estate. And some people come up through project management and some come up through construction. And many come in, like I said, from the money side of the business, being knowledgeable and building relationships and gaining experience in real estate finance, leading to an opportunity in real estate. And for you gentlemen, that was definitely your career pathway back into being in real estate ownership and development. It just may have taken 20 or 30 years of a very successful career to get there.
1: Chad can I make one other point while we're on this topic of business school please both of my children are college graduates neither one seemed to be interested in pursuing business school my son's a software engineer he started a business my daughter started more traditional business that's what they're doing and I've encouraged them both to go to business school and both of them have said no thank you okay it was right for Wayne and me okay it may be right for some of your listeners it's not right for everyone but the one thing I've tried to stress to my children is not the educational part. But I said, look at your mom and me and look at your lives and look at the friends that we do things with your entire kind of life. How many of them were my business school friends Okay, that have become part of the fabric of our community and the fabric of our lives? They have made our lives richer, more fulsome, more complete. And that's part of what you get from that group of friends you develop at business school. By the way, you could develop them at law school. You could develop them lots of in your jobs, but that fabric of friendship makes yours, Wayne's and mine and his wife's and our children's life richer. And that's part of what you're looking for when you choose kind of that next step in your career, be it a job or an education. I just want to make that point.
2: That's a really good point, Ron. I think what happens as all of us who've managed young people and cultivated and mentored, you get the question for somebody two or three years out of school, like, God, I love real estate. I love what I'm doing. But should I go back to business school? And to me, it's a very curated answer. I'd be very careful because it's not for everyone. And Ron articulated perfectly why it worked for us, but the MBA has a different value proposition than it did back in the 80s when I was at Trammell Crow, where if you didn't have a degree from Harvard or a major business school, it was going to be somewhat career limiting at that company. Well, now it has tremendous value, but it's not right for everybody. And those young people put their head down and can be very productive during those years and get the right mentorship, maybe don't need the credential as much as somebody that really wants to go on and have senior leadership at a CEO level or really challenge themselves corporately. So it's a very curated answer. It's hard and it's not, I don't have the same answer for every young person that asked me that question, but I love the question.
0: Absolutely. Such great points. And I can share kind of the other side of the coin, which is I applied to, was admitted to business school, was considering going, and I ultimately made the decision not to go. And so if that same young person was asking me about my experience and how I made that decision, the way I would characterize it is that I was working in an entrepreneurial setting where I knew I was no good at working for other people. I was going to work for myself no matter how risky it was, and no matter how hard I had to struggle to get to where I was going. And to me, the career experience and the next steps I could take within my company and building my own business were far more important than what I could get from business school. But it doesn't erase the value of what I see as the two fundamental pieces that come out of a graduate education program. One you've talked about is the knowledge and the skill set. And two is the Network. And so the question is, how did I get those things if I didn't go to business school? And I think everyone has to ask themselves that question How am I going to get these things if I don't go to a graduate program? Because I think you can't sidestep those important propositions and find the success, the happiness, and the culture and the community and the network that Ron was talking about. On the other end in your adult life, unless you consciously make some choices to find it elsewhere. And for me, and this is a great segue into our next topic, while I picked up the skill set, learn by doing was my methodology, the relationships really came in through the development and the growth of Spire and committing myself and my time and my energy. And I spent Nearly as much money in building Spire as I would have spent going to business school. It was just an alternate investment in building that same culture and that same network that has allowed me to sit at the table with gentlemen like you that I count not only among my closest advisors and colleagues from a business perspective, but Ron, as you said, among my closest friends. And we can go hang out at Terranea in Los Angeles for a weekend and have a great time together. And that is such a fabric of life that becomes important to all of us professionally and personally in our development of our adult lives How has your participation, and Wayne, you've been the chairman of the board for Spire. Ron, you were one of our original members of the Stanford Real Estate Council. You have been honored as a member of the Stanford Real Estate Hall of Fame. How has that network in the stage in your lives that it came to be, how has that influenced what your professional and personal life has been since then? Wayne, would you like to pick that up?
2: I believe, and I also encourage young people as they build those career stepping stones, You know, don't ignore your committee. It's just not all about making money and being the biggest and the baddest and all that. It's about what you can give back. And just a little sidestep, we just lost one of our great ones in our industry, Sam Zell. And as I did more research understanding Sam, he gave back so much to his community. And I think we have great leadership from those that have gone before us. And so when people approach you to do something, If it's really purposeful and mission bound, even though none of us have time to do and people listening to this, you'll never have time to do it. But if you make time, you know, the return will always come back two X is the way I look at it. And it's not financially is just what are the relationships and the friendships that you've built. So Spire is a perfect example of that. Yes, it's a professional organization. It's networking. But I have extracted friendships out of that experience and my other industry groups and the volunteer groups, the boards that I'm on, that far eclipse anything I would have thought. And that's valuable. That creates purpose and mission and being able to help other people, whatever they're struggling with or a business issue or a personal issue whatever, that's, I've always met people that I always think are so elevated, more elevated than I am and more skilled. And there's got to be something I can learn here. And that's been my Spire experience from our board and folks like you and others. So that's what I would say is just the return on your time investment is sometimes immeasurable in some of these activities.
1: So I'm going to get to Spire, but I want to take a step sideways for a second, because I think this will be interesting to the audience. I was an investment banker when I transferred from the New York office to the Los Angeles office. The senior partner there was a guy named Buzz McCoy. And the guys on the phone know this Buzz McCoy because he's also a very senior SPIRE member and he's also been inducted in the Stanford Real Estate Hall of Fame. So when I showed up, I said to Buzz, hey Buzz, I'm brand new to LA. I have three business school friends who live in Los Angeles who are all in the real estate industry. They and I would like to start a group of people that meet once a month to get together for breakfast who are all involved in real estate, but from different perspectives. So Buzz, you're senior, can you call the head of Alan Matkin's law firm? Okay, And can you call the head of Ernst & Young accounting firm? And can you call the head of Bank of America real estate lending group and ask them to give us their up and comers? Find their people who are call it 30 years old, who they think are going to be the leaders in their industry and tell them we want to form a group that gets together once a month that has relationships at all these different places around real estate. And Buzz did that for me. And we call ourselves the Real Estate Breakfast Forum. And we met for two or three years until I went to London and people went in different directions. But it's just a really good way to build relationships. Chad, you didn't go to business school, but if you were part of the Breakfast Forum, you would have had 10 people, but from different parts of the real estate ecosystem that you could call on. And I am telling you, those 10 people, I can still call today, right? And ask them a question on something I'm thinking about and they're very useful. That is a little bit how I see Spire, okay? So Spire, it's available to me to call people in real estate build relationships with them but ask them questions that we have an annual meeting where i learn stuff and i always say what i hear at that annual meeting in the, some of the panel discussions i apply the following monday to my business i do something different because something i learned at that meeting but as importantly after the meeting throughout the entire year i pick up the phone and i call somebody on that list and i said i'm thinking about doing something in your market or in your industry Am I crazy? Does this make sense? Can you introduce me to somebody? That's incredibly valuable. And I think that, Chad, you started it, and Wayne, you've been chairman of it. You've really created an ecosystem environment of people that we can call on who will give us their 30 minutes of time (laughs) and maybe change the direction on something we're working on. So that's kind of my inspired review.
0: Yeah, I always say that what I value the most about what we've built at Spire is that we've built a platform that anyone can make of it what they want to put into it. And I think that's what makes the organization special. And Ron, I can give you a real-time example of what you just said, which is after your panel at Terranea talking about what's going on in the banking industry, and we're going to get into that here in just a moment. I came away from that saying, wow, I need to take some action here. And I thought back to the global financial crisis. We're going to talk in a few minutes about the comparison of what happened in 2008 versus what's going on today. One of the things I did to survive the global financial crisis and create an alternate income stream for my real estate development business was go to work for the banks as a receiver. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. And after hearing that we're getting back to that moment in time where The word foreclosure is going to sneak back into our vocabulary in the real estate industry. I said, I need to reconnect with the other, and these were all Stanford relationships, with the other relationships that I had that we were doing that business in 08, 09, and we're getting the band back together. And I made that call the day after our recent retreat at Terranea. So real time, it really happens. So let's move on from there and let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds in banking so that everyone understands from where you're able to sit and the perspective you're able to share. Wayne, let's start with you. Obviously, you were at a very senior level in one of the largest institutions in the country focused on CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. Many of the people in the dadages, friends, and family probably don't even know what that means to start with. Can you explain what CMBS is and what your role was within Wells Fargo?
2: Sure. So CMBS, the formal market was really launched in 1991. That was precisely when I was coming out of my program at MIT. And as part of that program, I had to write a thesis and I chose to write it on kind of the beginning of the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. So in just very precise, definitional terms, it's no different than the residential mortgage-backed security market. It's just these mortgages are secured by commercial mortgages and that just means malls, office buildings, industrial buildings, multifamily properties. And they tend to be longer term, fixed rate, non-prepayable mortgages. So that's a major difference between the residential market. So I got my start in 1991. I was hired uh, by Numera Securities. So yes, Wells Fargo happened during the massive credit expansion that occurred beginning in 2010, right after the GFC but that's a similar credit expansion that occurred after the SNL crisis and I just happened to be kind of on the ground floor and was involved in one of the very first Hotel securitizations. It was about a 105 million dollar deal with one of my clients, and that market we really didn't know what we were doing back then. We were all kind of figuring it out as we went along, but that market has grown into what it is today, which is you know normal run rate about 180 to 200 billion, and probably has over four to five billion in outstanding. And it's been a very important market for large loans to be securitized, particularly office. We'll get into that, but that's the. Finish the CMBS market and how I got involved in it at a very kind of, I would say, ground floor level, very entrepreneurial level. And then time I spent at Royal Bank of Scotland, Wells Fargo, which is kind of building on those skills through these moments in the real estate cycle where you've had massive credit expansion.
0: And Ron, you've played several roles at Bank of America, all kind of under the heading of real estate investment banking, as you characterized it. But I think one of the areas that's very interesting to focus on is If you can describe and define for people legacy asset servicing, what that meant, because it's a fancy term, but you were right at the forefront of our last financial crisis and really leading the charge to save Bank of America and get it back on track. Maybe you can talk a little bit about real estate investment banking and focus on your experience in legacy asset servicing as well.
1: Let me start with real estate investment banking. The concept of real estate investment banking is we would raise capital for our clients in the public markets. Make that really clear. Our clients were real estate clients, and you know, Bank of America did business with a lot of private real estate clients, and we would loan them money off of Bank of America's balance sheet. But then we had a lot of public companies, the publicly traded REITs, the publicly traded homebuilders, the publicly traded casino companies. And anytime they would run a raise capital, they'd have to come to the investment bank through us. We would issue their equity into the public markets. We'd issue their bonds into the public market. So real estate investment banking is nothing more than we raise capital in the public markets for real estate related companies. And I've always thought of my career as helping my clients grow and build their businesses by access to the public capital markets. That was real estate investment banking. I did that at Morgan Stanley for 12 years, and then I transitioned and I ran Bank of America, which was primarily a commercial real estate lender who didn't do investment banking back in the late 90s. They wanted to get into investment banking, so they hired people like me and said, can you build a real estate investment bank, kind of, on the back of our real estate commercial bank? And I always jokingly say, I was a much better investment banker, apparently, when I had a multiple billion dollar balance sheet to work with. I became immediately smarter (laughs) with using Bank of America's capital to establish and build those relationships because those public issuers still borrowed from the bank. So that's the investment banking side. And I did that through, like I said, 12 years at Morgan Stanley, many years at Bank of America. And then the great financial crisis happened. And we had a shotgun merger, as everybody recalls, of Merrill Lynch and Bank of America, right? We put those two institutions together, and I ran the combined business for Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. Take myself through to 2011. I'll come to the legacy assets and servicing. So Bank of America had bought Countrywide in 2007. Countrywide was the largest lender to home buyers. They roughly had 25% of the entire market. Think about that. They had 25% of every home loan in America was originated and serviced by Countrywide. Okay. And most of those were subprime. So they had kind of the most challenged to credit clients. So Bank of America bought them 07 because Countrywide was in some financial trouble. And then in 2011, Bank of America realized how much trouble there was. We had a change in government. There were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had both been taken over by the government. Fannie Mae was Countrywide's largest customer. We serviced and originated more loans for Fannie Mae, an order of five times more than the next biggest. So we were very large. And we had 1.1 million customers in default. Think about that. 1.1 million American families that could not make their monthly mortgage payment, all being processed through what was then countrywide, now Bank of America. So I was asked to go take over that countrywide portfolio and do the best I could to sort of manage us through the crisis. And there were sort of two big things going on. One is just servicing those loans. And I apologize, this takes a long time, Chad, to get through so you can edit me down.
0: (laughs) Not a chance. This is big, short kind of stuff. I mean, this is... This is Hollywood quality material.
1: This was the big short time frame. So first thing we had to do was Bank of America was overwhelmed with the volume. We'd never seen 1.1 million loans out of the 12 million we serviced, right? And the total market's about 50 million loans in America. So again, we had 25%, but we had 50% of the defaults, okay? So we had twice the default rate of Wells, Twice the default rate of JP Morgan, because again, countrywide had done the riskier loan. So we had 1.1 million of our 12 million loans in default. When a loan goes into default, it takes tremendous amount of work. You got to call the customer, you got to ask for documentation. The government was creating these HARP programs, which were loan modifications, but in order to get that loan modification, you had to prove certain things on behalf of the borrower, you had to do certain levels of underwriting that took systems to be put in place to accomplish that. Okay. And I'll tell you, I started the business when I got there, we had 42,000 people working in that my division legacy assets, I ramped it up to 60,000 people, just so that we could start answering the phone when it was ringing and we could open the mail when it arrived because it just took bodies to do all of this. And so that was one part of it was just what I'll call the manual servicing of all of those loans to make sure every customer got a modification if they could. That was our first step. And if you couldn't get them a modification and they still couldn't make their payment, you try to help them do a short sale so they could move on. And if they would not do a short sale, eventually you had to get that property back you went into the foreclosure mode, and each of those had to work through a very complicated process. So I'll call that just the processing side. Separate from that, we were getting sued by everyone. So the Department of Justice sued us, 50 Attorney Generals sued us, one from every state. Fanny and Freddie were suing Bank of America. Mostly they were suing Bank of America through its ownership of Countrywide, but no one wanted to say we're suing Countrywide. It made a lot better press if you said you were suing Bank of America. So we had to defend all of those lawsuits as well.
0: You don't sue the guy who's bankrupt. You sue the one with all the money. (laughs)
1: 100% right. Yeah, it's like just said, oh, here comes a dad joke. Why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. So why do you sue banks? That's where the money was. So we were getting sued by a lot of people for things that Countrywide had done. And we were settling most of them because we were in the process of trying to settle so that we could move on. But the reason we called it Legacy Assets and Servicing was we wanted Bank of America to have the viable businesses kind of standalone, report the viable up and running businesses, investment banking, wealth management, commercial banking. Here's the earnings we're generating. Oh, yeah. And Sturzegger over in legacy asset servicing is losing $7 billion a quarter. We wanted to kind of separate those two.
0: Way to go, Ron.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. I was clearly the biggest loser for quite a while, but it was just differentiating the businesses. So we could take that legacy asset service and eventually wind it down to nothing and it would go away and the viable businesses could continue to thrive as they have
0: done. It's great when the primary objective of your job is to eliminate your own job.
1: Yeah, very true.
0: Well, you both obviously have been at the forefront of building businesses within major institutions, building very big and successful businesses, whether it's CMBS, a real estate investment banking, this legacy asset servicing that we've just been talking about. Wayne, I know that one of the things that you were really proud of and passionate about was your ability to navigate a large institution but to build a team that was entrepreneurial and developmental and to really have a role in helping build the people around you. Maybe you can talk about that and the culture that you existed within at Wells Fargo and the culture that you created within your team.
2: Thanks, Chad. Well, I think what Ron just described is you know, very aspirational, I think, for young people going into banking because you look at banking, it's regulated, it's very compliant-driven, it's legalistic now. You know, how could that be a very creative career in I think from Ron's perspective, he would say, oh my gosh, I am so rewarded. I was able to be so entrepreneurial. I was able to launch businesses, start businesses, hire who I wanted to. I mean, just the sheer magnitude of taking an organization up to 60,000 and managing that. These are very advanced skill sets. And I felt very fortunate that I never felt pinned in until the very end at Wells Fargo when the regulation and we were subject to the sales scandal and things internally became a lot more restrictive it wasn't that they you know gutted the entrepreneurial spirit but i think that the key to banking is to never get bored. And if they allow you to manage your own capital position and your own human capital, there's nothing more exciting and rewarding than to be in banking. And particularly when we have these moments where the credit expansion goes on for years, and that's how Ron and I built careers and platforms around helping many of the best entrepreneurs in the country try to keep up with them to be as entrepreneurial as they were and deliver capital on a timely basis at an attractive price for the bank and for our borrowers. But to do that, if you fail, you can have all the capital in the world. And if you fail on the human capital side, that's a failed model. So I think to be successful in banking, you've got to use these soft skills and build teams, recruit teams, inspire teams, and compensate teams so they are highly motivated. You know, when Ron was in investment banking, the folks that he was managing, you know, these are very elevated, well-educated, young professionals that want to make a lot of money. And you've got to motivate them. And it's hard. And I just believed in a model, always hire better than you, and give them as much freedom you know, as I was given. And I think the key to you know, my career from getting bored, I would always go to my senior manager and say, hey, I think I'm running out of things. Yeah, I've run this part of our business but I really would like to launch this product or I really think our REIT group needs to be reorganized. And here's my business plan. Here's the white paper on it. I always anticipate where the business was going. And that was fun for me, you know, and that's always my manager. The guys I work for always allowed me to do what I wanted and it came from like, I need more challenge. And I tell young people, if you're bored and we're not challenging, you come to me because I will give you the challenge. There's plenty to do in real estate. And that's how you keep groups together. And it's not always about you know the compensation. They really want the psychic income. And I was rewarded early on in my career. I was given a lot to do, a lot of responsibility and a lot of risk to fail. And we did fail. You know, We all fail in certain moments. And these are the moments that teach you and the lessons learned going forward. But I think you can be very, you know, what we used to call entrepreneuring. You can be very entrepreneurial within these large, slow-moving, behemoth, highly regulated balance sheets if you kind of know the system and you can get along with people and work with capital allocation. So, I was very fortunate that the system allowed me to do that. and I'm sure Ron would say the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that Wayne, you found yourself in such a highly regulated and institutional environment, but you were given that latitude and the ability to fail forward. And I think that shows the confidence they had in you and your leadership and the ability to run that team in the direction you wanted to take it. And Ron, from your perspective, what did it take to build the culture in Bank of America that you were looking for, for success and to meet the needs of your clients, which as you said, was your fundamental job every day was to show up and help meet their needs. And does it go beyond just establishing a dress code, which I understand was very important to you at Bank of America?
1: I'd say the following. I always talked about clients. So think about the way we manage these large organizations. Every Monday morning, you have a Monday morning meeting, you bring your whole team together, And I would spend that entire time not talking about Bank of America, not talking about how difficult the world was or what the economy is doing, spent the whole time talking about what we're going to do to help clients, Okay, what we're going to talk to clients about this week, and structurally or strategically what we are doing at Bank of America to better help those clients. It was always focused on the clients. And when my people would complain about compensation or whatever it is, I kept saying, I'm going to make you a promise, okay? If we make our clients a lot of money, they are going to pay us a lot of money. And if they pay us a lot of money, I'm going to have a chance to pay you a lot of money. If we do not make our clients a lot of money, I promise you, they're not going to pay us a lot of money. And I promise you, therefore, I will have nothing to pay you. So this is all about doing what the client needs. I just reinforce that every business plan, every strategy, Wayne talked a little bit about reorganizing things, every reorganization, every strategy was meant and articulated how this was going to benefit clients. And if it benefited clients, it was going to benefit the company. And if it benefits company, it benefits the individual. And I think that's an important part of building every business, whether or not you're on Chad and my side or if Wayne's side or Chad, an entrepreneur like you, it's that strategy and then communicating that strategy to your team, getting them to buy into that mission, then you're all having fun doing it together.
2: I would just underscoring the importance of having that client orientation or as a manager having an orientation. How do I make my bankers be as successful as they can? So Ron hit the nail on the head. If they're always worried about themselves and comparing themselves to you know the guy in the office next to them, they're not going to be very successful. It's kind of that outward view. And it's a very rewarding part of banking is when you solve something complicated for a borrower's balance sheet and you add value. As Ron said, they always reward you with loyalty and more business. And that's very empowering for a young person as they grow their career. And you as a senior manager, you turn over these relationships to the younger folks and you see how successful they bring them. So that's kind of the it's hard to describe banking as a career. But when that happens, you make those linkages as a younger banker To me, it can be a very rewarding career if you have the right focus, as Ron said. You always focus on kind of serving others, and you'll do really well yourself.
0: (laughs) And Ron, I made a joke earlier, but I do want to come back to what I was talking about. You talked about when you're putting your best foot forward and servicing your clients. The importance of portraying the part as well and the dress code that you imposed and enforced aggressively at Bank of America.
1: I tried hard. I mean, if we're going to go into a client's office and we're going to insist they pay us multiple million dollars because we are so good, they got to believe you can deliver. So I just had a rule. You got to wear a suit and tie right? Now, by the way, there are some clients, Wayne brought up Sam Zell. Sam Zell didn't want you to wear a suit and tie. So obviously we didn't put a suit and tie in it. So I go back to you dress the way your client expects you to dress. But I wanted my team to look professional because I was going to ask that client for so much money to reward us for our activities. I wanted them to say, these guys are really good. And we look the part. I think that's important as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: In the office, I'm not quite so concerned, but if you don't have a suit jacket hanging on the back of your chair, and a tie nearby, you can't come into the conference room when the client shows up. (laughs) That was just a pretty simple
0: rule. There's the old expression, form over substance. And I don't think form should ever be over substance, but form and substance definitely have to go together.
1: Correct. And Chad, may I tell us a story that you may find helpful somewhere in your thing? Sure. So when Bank of America and Merrill Lynch merged, we both had full teams. Okay, so let's just take real estate investment banking. Bank of America had a full real estate investment banking team. Merrill Lynch had a full investment banking team. We both had global heads of those. I was the one for Bank of America. Jeff Horowitz, who's a fabulous investment banker, had the same role for Merrill Lynch. There's only going to be one of us in the combined organization. So I asked to be interviewed for the head job, even though I ran it. And I was sort of told, you know something, Horowitz is great, which he is. He lives in New York, which he does. The guy who runs Merrill Lynch is going to be running investment banking. He knows Jeff. We're just going to let Jeff run it. Ron, there really is not a role for you. That's business. Okay. I petitioned. I begged. I worked. Just give me a 30-minute interview. That's all I want. So this is the learning experience. You know, this works for your children, and this works for my teammates. I said, I, as a daddy to my kids, has his first job interview in 11 years. For his own job, (laughs) okay? And this is what our family does when there's something we really want. Daddy goes and gets his shoe shine. Daddy gets a haircut. Daddy puts on his best suit and tie. And daddy prepares all weekend for a 30-minute interview because that's all I was going to get. But here's the important part. When I finally sat down with the guy who ran investment banking, who basically said, I'm really short on time. Can we do this in 15 minutes? Okay? And then he says, I've heard great things about you. Tell me about your background and your family. And I said, if we only have 15 minutes, let's focus on the business. And then if you offer me the job, I'll tell you all about my kids and my family because I had prepared a 30-minute speech. But the speech was not about why me. I wanna make this really clear to your audience. The speech was, what should our business plan be in combining Bank of America and Merrill Lynch's strengths To help our clients. And if we bring Bank of America's strengths and Merrill Lynch's strengths to our clients and deliver it in a unified fashion, we will dominate real estate investment banking. I never said I was good. I never said I could do about it. I didn't tell him I went to Harvard Business School. It was nothing about me. It was all about the business and how the business implemented properly would help clients. And I got the job. When he offered me the job, he said, I cannot even believe I am doing this, right? Because I was so set because Jeff is so good and he is, right? I'm going to give you the job because I think you can integrate these businesses, right? You can get these people to work together, which I did, for the next three years until I went and did legacy asset servicing and Jeff took over. And now he is one of the most dominant real estate investment bankers and that platform is doing exactly the business plan we came up with. But I think it's really important that not only your children see you pursue something you want and the way you go about doing it, but then your teammates see how you pursue something you want without being obnoxious or rude or pounding of chest, It was all about strategy and customers. So I just want to put that out there for your audience to think about.
2: Chad, can I just add on to what Ron just said because it's so powerful? It's called the 15-minute rule in business. In 15 minutes, your entire career can change. Ron's career changed in 15 minutes. I had my 15 minutes when I was getting fired at Nomura, I had just joined Nomura in their securization group. We were doing CMBS, kind of struggling. I was working with a very, very good colleague of mine who went to, you know, he got his MBA from University of Chicago. And we were on the desk struggling to get these deals done. This new kid shows up at Numira by the name of Ethan Penner, who is consulting all real estate across the global platform. And he calls Dave and myself into his office like the third day is there and he sits us down. This is the 15 minutes. He said, Hey, Dave, I hear you guys are good, but you know, I'm going to have to fire you because you're competing with me and I'm the sole global head of commercial real estate. I don't need you guys. So thanks very much. And in that minute, I looked at my partner, Dave, and he looked at me and he's very smart guy. He said, hold on, Ethan, let's just talk about this for a second. And in those 15 minutes, we danced, we tap danced, we did everything we could to convince him that we were the best guys to lead his CMBS business. I think he was going to hire us, but he wanted to see us sweat and he wanted to see us work for it. And probably they were going to hire, you know, Ron. But the lesson here is that sometimes in 15 minutes, your career can just change. And if we hadn't gotten fired, then hired back. I don't think I would have had quite the career trajectory that I had. And same with Robert, So
0: Incredible stories, gentlemen. Thank you very much for sharing with our friends and family. We've been going for 50 minutes. We'll take a break here. And when we come back on the next episode of Davages, we'll pick up right here and talk more about what's happening right now in the banking industry and the economy as a whole today. And we'll compare that to past events in the world of banking, including the global financial crisis of 2008. We hope that you will all join us for that engaging and informative discussion next time here on Datages. And until then, remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does.
1: Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages Podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly
0: what do you do? Because I'm doing everything, I'm paying for everything. No, get back
1: here, get back here right now.